Turn again, if you will, to John chapter 12 this week. Continue our study, John chapter 12. one of my favorite uh, events in the Gospels because I think it's so profound. See, I've preached on it before from some of the other accounts but never from John. It reminds me, as I, I may have told you this story before, but it reminds me of uh, one of my very favorite stories about President Abraham Lincoln. When Lincoln was president, he invited at one point some of his Kentucky and uh, backwoods friends from down home to join him for a very formal dinner at the White House. And they seemed a bit out of place uh, to the Washington crowd, but after all, they were the president's friends, so things went pretty well um, through the dinner. And uh, went pretty well until the end of dinner when the coffee was served. And uh, suddenly one of Lincoln's old friends began to do just what they always did back home in Kentucky, and he began to saucer and blow his coffee. Now, some of you know what that's about. But you kind of take this, spill a hot coffee into the saucer and kind of blow on it, big surface area, cools it down, then drink it from the saucer with some accompanying slurping kinds of sounds. And, um, well, that may have been the way to drink coffee in Kentucky, but that was not the way to drink coffee in the White House, not even in 1860, just like it wouldn't be today either. So President Lincoln's elite Washington uh, guests were somewhat appalled at these backwoods Hicks that had come into the White House. Abraham Lincoln was never one to forget his friends, forget where he came from. And seeing this situation developing, seeing an uncomfortable, embarrassing thing that his friends might have to endure without thinking about it, he took his coffee, spilled it into his saucer, began to blow on it, drink it from his saucer just like his friends. To the chagrin of the Washington elite, undoubtedly. We've all committed some faux pas, some social blunder. I guess what I like about that story about Lincoln is that there's kind of a double whammy there. That uh, because of the sensitivity of the president who cared about his friends and didn't forget where he was from, the initial perhaps mistaken etiquette on their part is it, it becomes the norm and the judgmental attitude that was a threat to them uh, becomes what is wrong in the situation. That becomes the real social blunt. Our text reminds me of that story because, not because we have a social blunder here, we don't have a social blunder, but we do have somebody doing something that is quite out of the ordinary and, and very quickly open to judgment, and yet by this wonderful reversal it takes place when Jesus, the way Jesus responds to this, there's this wonderful twist of events that shows us the richness of, of the act that was thought so out of place and, and uh, turns the tables on those who thought they had something to criticize. Well, let me read it. John chapter 12, the first few verses. Six days before Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were coming over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. I'd like for us to learn two simple truths from this text today. The first is this, that Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. This morning we begin uh, the study of the last week of Jesus' life. Now that does not mean that we're almost finished with this gospel. Indeed, we have almost half of the gospel to go. Ten of its 21 chapters focus on the last week. In fact, that pattern is true of all of the gospel accounts. Two-fifths of Matthew focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. Three-fifths of Mark focuses on the last week. And a third of Luke focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. So what is so special about this single week? What is it that makes this one week the most important week in the history of the world? What is it? Well, only one thing, that Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem and there to die, to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners, only to be raised again. That's what makes the week so important. And that's what's in view in our text here. Chapter 11 ended with the threat, with the resolve of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, that they will now put Jesus to death. It's just a matter of when and how we're going to do it, but it's already decided that the sentence has been passed. Putting out the word that he needs to be turned in, and, and the word is out on the street. But Jesus, of course, is nowhere to be found because he's withdrawn and he's out in the little town of Ephraim. Chapter 12 begins with a word that for some reason is not translated in the NIV. The little word, therefore. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts, therefore. Now, somebody said, when you see a therefore, see what it's there for. It refers back to something. Well, it refers back to the fact that what had just happened, the resolve to put Jesus to death. And the word out that we're going we're gonna to arrest him. Let us know if you know where he is. Therefore, Jesus, six days before Passover, Jesus arrived. Man, it sounds like he's walking right into a trap. It, it, it sounds like he intends to die. Because he knows this, therefore, here he comes. What does he intend to, to get hung on a cross? Exactly. Not suicide, but an intentional move to lay down his life. That's what he came for. It's seen in a, in, in the more, in a subtler way, but a more profound way even, in the fact that it is Passover that he has come for. You know, at the beginning of his ministry, John the baptizer said, Look, this is the Lamb of God. And yet every time the trouble had come close, and every time they had tried to, to capture him and all, he, he disappeared, he withdrew. He said, My time's not yet come. But now this time, there's trouble, and here he comes. Evidently, he thinks his time has come. And what time is it? Well, it's Passover time. 
It's not just any old time. It's Passover time. It's the Passover time when back in, in Egypt they took the Passover lamb and they killed the Passover lamb and they put the blood over the doorpost of the house. And anyone that was in the house was safe when the, when the angel of death came through Egypt and killed the firstborn of every family. But if you were under the blood of the Passover lamb, you were safe. You were delivered. Thus God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And now here it is Passover and the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world has now walked into the Passover. As the lambs are being gathered from all over the country, the Passover lamb walks into Jerusalem. Here he comes because he came to die, to give his life a ransom for sinners. Now, as clear as that is to us, as we look back and we read all of this, it wasn't clear at all to the disciples. We think it should have been because Jesus had announced repeatedly that this is what he was going to do. He had told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the hands of the chief priests and the elders to be, to be killed. And, and he told them at another time, they're going to hand me over to the Romans, and the Romans are going to, are going to crucify me. In fact, we heard, we, we read from the other Gospels that on this trip to, toward Jerusalem, just hours before this, he had told them all again. They never got it. The evidence never sank in that Jesus really had come to die. They heard the words. They didn't grasp it. Then in our text, we have this dinner. There's a special dinner given in honor of Jesus who's raised Lazarus from the dead and now Lazarus is here and his friends and Simon is the host and evidently Jesus had cured him from leprosy and here he's having this dinner in honor of Jesus lots of people there and here comes Mary Matthew and Mark tell us the account but they don't tell us it's Mary only Luke tells us that here comes Mary Lazarus sister unlike the disciples unlike everyone else Mary had been listening Remember the count back in Luke where Jesus comes to their house and Martha gets all exercised because, Lord, Mary's not even helping me. I'm trying to get dinner. And here's what's Mary doing. She's sitting at Jesus' feet, learning, listening, paying attention. She'd been listening. She'd been thinking. She'd understood. He came to die, he says. He's going to crucify, he said. What's that going to mean? Now, we can only imagine the thought process, but Mary is obviously an intelligent woman. If he's going to be crucified, like he said, how, what are we going to do? How are we going to even bury him? If he's going to be crucified, that's a, they'd seen crucifixions before. That was a brutal thing. And, and you're not in the hands of your family. You're in the hands of, of the Roman soldiers. How, how, are we, how are we going to even express our, 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 our love for him? How, how are we going to even do express our respect for him he may be arrested he could be arrested tonight at this dinner and taken away we could never get our hands on him again we could never see him and finally mary says now's the time i can't wait to see what's going to happen now's the time and so she leaves and she goes and she comes back with a a, a flask of perfume that she had set aside for this purpose and so while this dinner's going on, and we know Jesus and the 12 disciples were there, and, and Simon the leper, and, and, and then other friends, but there are at least 15 or so guys, and there might have been 50, we don't know how many. Here comes Mary, and she comes in, and she breaks this flask of perfume, and she anoints the body of Jesus. Matthew says she pours it on, her, on his head. 
John says she pours it on his feet. We were talking about a pint of perfume. She probably poured it on his head and all over his body and all the way down to his feet, just like you would anoint a body for burial, as the custom was, with perfume and spices so that it would cover the odor as the body began to decay. Mary wasn't crazy. This was an intentional act because she understood what the disciples missed. Jesus came to die. And that's what's in focus here. Well, the disciples again missed the point. Judas, John tells us Judas' response, but all the disciples joined him. What's going on? No, Lord, no. What's happening here? And Jesus says, no, he knows what happened. He rebuked his disciples. And look at verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. That little sentence has some grammatical problems. It makes it hard to translate, but if we read what Jesus said from Matthew 26, we have a little fuller account, and it makes, and, and makes it crystal clear that Jesus understands that she knows what she's doing and that it's his death in view. Matthew 26, aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And then he goes on to bless her and say, Wherever the gospel's preached, you're going to hear about this woman, what she did today. Why is it so important? She understood that Jesus had come to die. This morning I call you to understand what Mary understood, what the disciples missed at this point, the centrality and the necessity of the death of Jesus on the cross. You know, it's possible to be in, in church all your life, to learn the stories about Jesus and listen to the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and to hear that you should follow Jesus' example and, and to learn the law and to celebrate the, the, the holy days of the church calendar and yet completely miss the point of what his life was about, that he came to die in the place of sinners. I remember a situation back when I was in New Jersey, a couple of people kind of related here. I have a friend named Bill Walker that lives in the town, Morristown, New Jersey, where we live. Bill was a member of First Presbyterian Church in that town. He, he was born into a family, went to that church, he attended that church uh, every Sunday until he went off to college, and then when he was home and through grad school. Bill told me one day, that in all of those years of being in church every Sunday and being in Sunday school every Sunday, he said, you know, I never one time heard why it was that Jesus had to die. He said, we heard, we heard Bible stories about Jesus' life and about his teaching. And he says, I remember one time as a kid wanting to ask, well, if he was such a good person, why did they kill him? But he said, it seemed like it had been a stupid question and I shouldn't ask, and so I never asked it. And he said, in all of those years, by the time he's 22 years old, 25 years old, and has a master's degree, and he's now back as a member of this church, and he's been in this church every Sunday of his life, and he's never one time heard why Jesus had to die. That seemed unfathomable to me. Except that one time Bill and I were out knocking on doors and visiting people who were trying to plant a new church and he's now 35 years old or something like this. He's been a Christian for years. And we knock on the door of this house and it ends up being the house of one of the elders of that church. People that he knows. 
Well, the guy wasn't home, but his wife was there, and she was very hospitable, and she invited us in, and we sat and talked with her for a lot, and we talked about church stuff, and we began to talk about the Lord. And I'd heard Bill's story, and so I was, I was curious to ask her. She told me she had taught Sunday school, ninth grade Sunday school, for 20, 30 years in that church. So I'm anxious to hear what she knows of the gospel and how she understands things. We kind of move in that direction. Finally, I get down and I said, why, why did Jesus die anyway? What was the significance? Why did God let that happen, you think? And then she hummed all around and kind of evaded, and I kind of brought back, oh, what was the point? We talked. She was very open. Bottom line is, I don't know. Don't know. You see, it's possible to know all about Jesus and to tell Bible stories and be a leader in the church and sit there every Sunday and still miss the point that Jesus came to die. He didn't come to provide us an example, though he did that. He didn't come to, to be a great teacher, though he was. He came to die, to give his life as a sacrifice, a ransom in the place of sinner. This morning I call you to understand the heart of the gospel. Not that you ought to follow Jesus as example. Not that you ought to listen to Jesus' teaching, though you should. But that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. So that we wouldn't have to be destroyed for our sin like Achan was. So that we go free. Because we know Jesus, not because we're good enough. He came to die. That's the whole point of his life. That's the whole point of the gospel. So then there's a second truth that flows out of that. Therefore, Jesus is worthy of your treasures. Jesus is worthy of your treasures. Do you ever overdress for an occasion? My wife and I had a kind of a humorous and embarrassing kind of situation when I was graduating from seminary. Uh, dressing up fancy isn't something we do very often, but this, uh, the day before graduation, I guess, there was a dinner that was put on by the faculty for the graduating seniors and their spouses. Well, it sounds like a pretty nice deal. And uh, so we got, I put on my suit. My wife put on her nicest dress, and off we went. We drove about an hour. We didn't live close to the seminary. And we drove up to this dinner for, hosted by the faculty. We didn't hobnob with the faculty much, you know. And here we're going to have this dinner thing. And as we get there, park in a parking lot, and we watch people coming in, and they're in shorts and tennis shoes. And, we're thinking, oh man, here we are in our Sunday best. Now, obviously, we didn't the word. This was kind of like some kind of informal picnic or something like that, although it wasn't outside. And we were like embarrassed. Like, what? Are, I mean, we're here, we're all dressed up, and there's not another soul with a coat and tie on or a, or a fancy dress. I mean, it's just all, you know, sports attire. We felt so out of place that we, we couldn't even bring ourselves to go in. We finally said, no, we dressed up for a nice dinner, and we're going to go and celebrate that we finished this course in these four years of seminary. And we went off to a restaurant, and we had dinner together, the two of us, and celebrated. <laughs> we just couldn't bring ourselves to face all the questions about, where are you guys been? Where are you going? You know, and to think, well, we thought this was a big deal. And I think that's kind of how Martha must have felt. 
And Martha comes in here, and it's like it's a big deal. Jesus is going to die, and she understands it. and It's worth all of her best treasures, and, 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 and yet it's an embarrassing situation, and people are not only uh, 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 understand her, they're offended, and they get hostile. Just put yourself in Mary's place. They're having this dinner. It's a nice thing to do. I mean, after all, Jesus had healed Simon from leprosy and he had raised Lazarus from the dead. You would think it was maybe a big deal, right? Here comes Mary. All the talk is going on. Nobody knows what she's doing. Here she comes with a pint of spikenard, expensive perfume that comes from the roots and the, and the, and the, the thorns of the, of the, of the nard plant. This perfume was no small thing. It's in an alabaster jar, we learned from one of the other things, with a long, thin, narrow neck that you can break off so that you can empty it like a drop or two at a time. This is worth 300 denarii. Now, one denarii was a man's wages for a day. It's talking about a year's wages. How much you make in a year? That's how much this is worth. A year's wages. The disciples see her coming in with this jar of perfume and they start getting excited. Wow, is she, really, is she going to give that to the Lord? Man, you know what that's worth, Peter? And this was going to fund the ministry for the next years. Judas is getting excited. He's, he's used to skimming off the top and he knows money things. He knows what this is worth. 300 denarii. He ends up betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's about 120 denarii, less than half what this perfume was worth. Here comes Mary, and she comes up with the perfume to the Lord. And before anybody can figure out what's happening, she breaks the neck off, and she pours the whole thing all over Jesus, and it drips down off his feet and onto the floor, and the odor just fills the room. And everybody is looking. $20,000 worth of perfume. She wasted it. She wasted it. Mary, what's the matter with you? What are you doing? There's no picking it up. It's gone. Wasted. Spill on the floor. Running down between Jesus' toes. The disciples are outraged. Look what you've done. What about the ministry? What about the poor? Do you realize how many poor people this would have fed? Judas led the attack, but the other gospels tell us that all the disciples joined in. Jesus says, no, no, leave her alone. Leave her alone. You'll always have the poor. She understands. Jesus is worthy of our treasures. The significance of his sacrificial death on the cross, which Mary understood was in view here, was so great that Jesus defended the waste of this perfume. It was a proper gift. It was a proper expression of gratitude for his death that was coming. 
We have some related dangers here in the church, I think. There's a danger of neglecting the poor. The Lord Jesus himself warns us about that. He forbids us to say, be warmed and fed and, and send them off without help. But there's another danger. There's the danger, the one that the disciples succumbed to here, where they were all concerned about the ministry and they were all concerned about the program. They were all concerned about the poor and they were so practical the devotion to Jesus just didn't fit in. Pure, unabashed, uninhibited, wasteful devotion to Jesus seemed beneath them. Unimportant. Impractical. But Jesus didn't think so. He is worthy of our treasures. I challenge you this morning. What are you willing to sacrifice in pure worship of Jesus? It was important to Mary, so important to her that even $20,000 or so worth of perfume didn't matter as much as her love for the Savior. So how much money would you waste on Jesus? When we give our money, that's what it feels like, and we just waste it. I mean, it's gone. Especially if you give it to the poor, who knows what they'll do. It's just gone. Wasted. How much would we waste? The Lord. He's worthy of your wealth. Well, Mary wasted something else. She wasted her pride, her reputation. First of all, she took down her hair in public and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, which makes her look like an immoral woman certainly earned her the scorn of the disciples. She publicly humiliated herself there at Jesus' feet. How about your fragile ego? Would, would you waste that on Jesus? See, I've noticed that people get real uncomfortable when somebody gets, like, too hot with devotion to Jesus. We want to back away from that a little bit. We want to be more balanced. We, want to be, we don't want to make a fool of ourselves with our faith. We want to just cool it. Not Mary. Think me a fool? I don't care. Don't like my reputation? I don't care. In devotion to Jesus, here it is. How foolish would you look for Jesus? He's worthy of your treasured reputation. Or, or how about your time? You know, money is one thing. We can always earn more money, but time, man, it's just slipping away. How much of your treasured time would you get? Or your children. You raise your children and you pray for them and you, and you, and you try to build up something to leave them. And, but what if the Lord says, I want you kids to go and serve me somewhere? Would you give your children your greatest treasures, the treasures with names? Maybe your name would... would would you waste them on Jesus? And you young people especially. Oh, my heart is heavy for young people because I see a pattern here. Everyone assumes, I've noticed, including some of your parents and teachers, everyone assumes that somehow when you're young you just go out and sow your wild oats and live for the devil and then you'll come back someday and be a good church-going person. When I read my Bible, I don't find that. 
I find in my Bible that sometimes the most intense passion for the Lord is by young people in their teens and early 20s. David. When was David's heart most on fire for God? When he was a kid. When did David believe he could take on Goliath? He, he was at best in his early 20s, maybe still a teenager. Or Joshua. Or the Virgin Mary, who was probably 17, maybe. I know that's been my experience. Never has my heart been so white hot with devotion for the Lord Jesus as when I was young. That's when I learned what discipleship was about. When I was in college and others were out learning how to party, I was learning God's Word. Because that's what I believed I needed to know for life. I was telling somebody the other day, there are about two or three times in my life that I've prayed all night about something, either by myself or with somebody. To my shame, all of those times before I was ever 22 years old. See, now I'm much too old and practical for that kind of devotion. I call you young people to that kind of devotion. Your whole life is before you. Don't waste it. Waste it on Jesus. Don't get it all scarred up and then give him some broken shred of a life. No, give him the fresh youth the strength, your brains, your education, your, your, your learning days. God the Father sent his Son to be wasted that you might have eternal life. He's worthy of your treasures, whatever they might be. Now, if that kind of devotion to Jesus is not popular, wasn't the popular with Mary, and it's not going to be popular with you and me. The disciples pulled out all the stops Barrage Mary with criticism. The church is not more gracious. Parents criticize. Peers criticize. Friends cut you to ribbon with their advice. But Jesus is still worthy of your best treasures. His sacrifice deserves yours. Two points to which we go to the Lord's Supper then. Jesus came to die for you. To have his body bruised and broken and to have his lifeblood poured out in the dirt. Wasted. As he took the curse which we deserve. Therefore, he's worthy of our treasures. Not the leftovers, not the defective. Not what we don't need anymore. What, what, not what we don't care about anymore. But our most highly prized treasures, whatever they might be, poured at his feet. Amen. Father, I pray that as we celebrate the supper now, that you would cause these truths to be um, burned deep into our heart. Lord, that as we reflect on them and receive with, in a very tangible way these elements of that represent your body and blood to us. I pray that you would bring the gospel home to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.